Brethren, I invite you to turn in your copies of the Scripture to the Old Testament book, 2 Samuel, chapter 1. Hear once again the very Word of God. Now it came to pass, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag, on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp, with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan his son are dead? Then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when they had looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son, And he told them to teach the children of Israel the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa. Let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they are not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, 
who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of a woman. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we come to this portion of your word where you describe the reign of your servant David as king over Israel, we pray that his example might be an example to us, both in his faithfulness where he was faithful and in his repentance when he sinned against you. Father, he was called, he is called a man after your own heart, and yet he was frail. Help us to look upon ourselves. May we be called upon as women and men after the heart of God, even though we are frail. For indeed, Lord, you lift us up. You forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. You put our feet on a solid rock, the cornerstone of the church, Jesus Christ. And You make us joint heirs with You before the Father. Help us to be a witness to this world of brokenness for our sin and of trust and faith in the One who forgives sin and lifts up those who humble themselves before You. And we ask this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Well, today, brethren, we begin a sermon series through 2 Samuel. And though I have read for us the first chapter of this Old Testament historical book, it is my intention to begin the exegesis of this book next Sunday, not today. Today, though, I will be giving an introduction to this sermon series that will provide a very brief survey of the book and its importance to our Christian faith. The importance of 2 Samuel is manifold, but I would like for us to consider but three aspects that spring from our study in this book. And those three aspects are one, the importance of the place of history in our faith, two, the importance of the Davidic covenant in relationship to the new covenant, and then lastly, the importance of the Davidic example for our orthopraxy. So let us begin with the importance of the place of history in our Christian faith. Many of us here at Trinity are students of history. We find a certain kind of fascination in the recorded events of times past, whether it be the development of theology or dynasties that have risen and fallen, great men or women of renown, battles and wars fought and won or lost by a favored army or nation, inventions, works of art, great literature, music, advances in economics or in medicine. All of these are historical events and truly the great liberal art of study is that of history. Well, most serious students of history that have pursued a degree in history, as I did in my undergraduate years, are required to take at least one class in what is called 
historiography. Historiography is the study of the philosophy of history. This study endeavors to answer questions like, why study history? What importance does history have in society? And how is history best portrayed by those who record it? And questions similar to that. Now, one question that is seldom asked and answered is, why is history important? By most history departments in colleges and universities, the importance of their subject matter is merely assumed. They never really pose the question why it's important. There's a bit of a, a reason for that. You never want to question your importance when it's how you gain your livelihood. At least you want, don't want to bring that to the attention of others, right? But I can almost guarantee you that every student taking a freshman-level history of civilization course has asked the question, why is history important? And I can almost just assuredly assert that the answer to this question is not found in the course syllabus. Again, it's assumed that it's important in the universities and in colleges. But to answer the question of the importance of history is to search the very being of God. Let me say that again. To answer the question of the importance of history is to search the very being of God. History has importance because it is a manifestation of God's creativity, of His will, of His decree, His very words. That's why history is important. It is His story. So it must be part of our study. History is no abstract subject to be casually considered for study. It is the very outworking of God's decree, the very revelation of the Creator Himself. So history is inextricably bound to time and the cessation of moments as we know it. Unlike God who transcends time, yet history is His creation, the cessation of moments for His glory and the good of His creatures. Now this ties very closely to the redemptive acts of God. Consider this. Do God's promises have any meaning whatsoever without history? Without the history that we know in time? Likewise, do God's covenants have any meaning absent time and history? The answer is no. They only have meaning both in time and history. Our faith has meaning because God has created time and history in which all things exist. Redemption for sinful men only exists in the historical promises God fulfilled in time by and through our Savior Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Redemption for sinful men only exists in the historical promises of God fulfilled in time by and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are the beneficiaries of God's atoning works in history. And apart from that sovereign created historical activity, we neither exist nor can we be redeemed. History is essential to faith. It's not tangential. 
It is part and parcel of our faith. The Scriptures record over 250 times where God calls His people to remember or to recall to mind His historical deeds. It's one of the most prolific things in Scripture. Two entire psalms were penned by David as psalms of remembrance. Psalm 38 and 70. It could easily be said that these two psalms are psalms of history. One whole psalm, if you would, turn in your copy of the Scriptures with me to Psalm 136, is a historical account of God's deliverance of His people. And coupled with that is a phrase that is repeated over and over. Psalm 136, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for His mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His mercy endures forever. To Him alone who does great wonders, for His mercy endures forever. Do you see, and as you go through this, you see uh, Og uh, and... and uh, the, well, well, let me go to the verses, because I'm going to get it wrong if I say, try to do it from memory. He speaks of two great kings that have fallen by his decree. Sihon, the king of the Amorites, verse 19, and Og, the king of the Bashanites. These are accounts from the historical books of the Old Testament where two mighty kings who came against Israel were put down by God Himself by His decree. But notice that this is in the midst of mercy that all of these mighty acts are happening. You see, salvation and redemption for men comes in and through the history that God has crafted. The very manifestation of God becoming a man pivots on God the Father's promises of a Messiah named Jesus who would be born of a virgin, live a sinless life, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried and rose the third day. These are all historical occurrences and they are also essential to our salvation. Without these actions by the God-man Jesus Christ, there is no salvation for man. Thus, his history is essential to our faith. And this brings us to the second aspect of this introduction to 2 Samuel, the importance of the Davidic covenant in relationship to the new covenant. The book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament is one of many historical books that we find there. Some may wonder why I'm preaching from 2 Samuel and not 1 Samuel. And the answer is that just a few years ago, I did preach through 1 Samuel and have desired to continue the study in the life of King David ever since in the second book of Samuel. Though 1 Samuel introduced us to many historical figures, such as Eli the high priest and his two unfaithful sons, Hannah, the wife of Elkanah and the mother of Samuel, Saul, the first king of Israel, Jesse, the father of David, the shepherd boy. We met Goliath, a Philistine giant, and Jonathan, the faithful son and friend of David. All of this was found in 1 Samuel. Here in 2 Samuel, the focus is primarily 
on one person, David, as king over Israel. Now that's not an exclusive focus. We're going to learn about many other people. We're going to meet new characters like Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth. Interesting that they have closely tied names. We'll look at those names. Ishbosheth was a son of Saul and Mephibosheth a grandson of Saul. We'll also learn of Nathan, the prophet of God. Great warriors like Joab, Benaniah, and the son of, Je- the son of Jehoiada, and Uriah the Hittite. A beautiful na- maiden named Tamar and two treacherous sons of David named Amnon and Absalom. These are but a few of the colorful characters couched within this account. And this is a book filled with sin. Sin Sin-filled intrigue played out by a plethora of characters. Yet, this is God's story, His story of some of His people, and one in particular who is both a sinner and is saved by grace. In the midst of the book, we find the Davidic covenant. And that is a focal point. I'll speak to that in a moment. It's found in chapter 7. But previous to the Davidic covenant, God has made five other great covenants in history prior to 2 Samuel. The Adamic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, and the Mosaic Covenant, and the predecessor covenant to the Davidic Covenant, the Covenant of Redemption, which is articulated to to us in Genesis 3.15, where God promises the Messiah who would come to vanquish Satan and his minions, though his heel would be bruised. The Davidic Covenant being yet another everlasting covenant like the Adamic, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, and the Mosaic covenants. This everlasting covenant describes the kingly reign of the Messiah on the throne of David. And that has importance. This is none other than a description of Jesus the Christ, our Lord and Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. At His ascension to the right hand of the Father, He fulfilled and is fulfilling the Davidic covenant. And this brings us to the last of the three aspects of this introduction. The importance of the Davidic example to our orthopraxy. But before I go there, I want to draw your attention to the bulletin. And I want you to turn to page 7. That psalm that we just sang. O Lord Most High, with all my heart. As I read through this, this comes from Psalm 9, think of this in light of the Davidic covenant, of that covenant promised first in Genesis 3.15, where a Messiah would come to crush the head of of Satan, though his heel would be bruised, but he's coming in a kingly lineage. O Lord Most High, with all my heart, Your wondrous works I will proclaim. Those wondrous works are the history of God's redemptive work. I will be glad and give you thanks and sing the praises of your name. The Lord, the everlasting King, is seated on His judgment throne. 
the righteous judge of all the earth will make his perfect justice known. Jehovah will a refuge prove, a refuge strong for all who all oppressed, a safe retreat where weary souls in troubled times may surely rest. All they, O Lord, that know your name, their confidence in you will place. For you have ne'er forsaken them who earnestly have sought your face. Sing praises to the Lord Most High, to him who does in Zion dwell. Declare his mighty deeds abroad, his deeds among the nations tell. Again, this is a recounting of the historical benevolences of God through his Son Jesus Christ in providing redemption for men. Truly, this is a gracious God. And in Acts 13, while at Antioch, Paul preached a sermon in the synagogue that included this observation. We find this in Acts 13, 20, verses 23. Hear these words. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king. Now listen carefully. To whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now listen to that description of David. And when he had removed Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. We learned two important lessons from this portion of Acts. At least two. First, God raised up a king in Israel, a man after his own heart, who, by virtue of this quote, does all his will. Now, in the coming weeks, we will see King David in a variety of circumstances, some of which are very sinful and shall cost David his household and his kingdom greatly by God's hand of judgment. So how is it that this man could be said to do all his will? A man after God's own heart. Though King David would sin against God, causing grave consequences to himself and those around him, yet God is gracious and merciful to David, showing his loving kindness toward, his, toward this sinning child. And this brings us to the second great lesson of this passage found in verse 23. From this man's seed, David, according to the promise found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we'll see in a few weeks, God raised up for Israel a Savior named Jesus. God had made a promise to David, an historical promise some ten centuries before, that from David's seed, God would raise up for Israel a kingly Savior named Jesus. Ten centuries later, 
a thousand years. As profoundly admirable David was as a king over Israel, David's seed would be a king who would do the will of the Father to perfection when David could not. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, made very few references to his kingly role. Very few. His most prominent statements regarding that aspect of his life and work was that his, how, his hour had not yet come. We see that over and over in the book of John. This was a reference to his crucifixion, resurrection, and I believe his ascension. Yet in John's Gospel, chapter 5 and verse 30, we read this statement, which I believe is very pertinent to our study in 2 Samuel. John 5, verse 30. Jesus' words, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. These words hearken back to humility and to the character of David in his desire to serve God by doing his will. And the Scriptures record that he was a man after God's own heart. His seed our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did better than He. He did the will of the Father in all His ways. And this brings us to our application. In this verse, verse 5, Jesus says, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous. To judge is a kingly activity. We already read about one of David's first judgments in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Judgment is a kingly activity. To judge in righteousness is a holy king, kingly activity. To judge in righteousness is a holy kingly activity. And Jesus accomplishes that kind of judgment as He intercedes for His people at the right hand of God, for you and for me. God casts Himself before the throne of grace, before the Father, saying, my sacrifice is for this one, and for this one, and for this one, and for this one. And you and I are the recipients of that grace. God's mercy is shown toward us. He withholds His judgment because the Son has cast Himself before the Father, having taken upon Himself His wrath that we might live. Jesus accomplishes that kind of judgment as He intercedes for His people at the right hand of God. He rightly goes before the Father and pleads our case because He was our substitutionary atonement. 
Only He could do that. This truth in history is captured in our Lord's words in John chapter 6, verse 39, where we read, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. In history, you have been redeemed. It's already occurred. Your sins are forgiven if your trust is in Christ alone for salvation. And on the last day, the will of the Father will be done because Christ will gather to Himself all those who were given to Him by the Father. And how do we know that will happen? Because Jesus has come to do the will of the Father. For Jesus doing the will of the Father in the lineage of King David necessitates capturing the souls of lost men for eternity. That is the will of the Father. That you would be a redeemed people. Redeemed unto God the Father as His children. Jesus ransomed His life for those whom the Father has chosen. Jesus will lose none of them, the Scriptures teach us. Brethren, that is salvation. Jesus will not lose you on the day of judgment. Instead, He will gather you under His wings as a hen does its chicks. In that salvation, Jesus purchases for us that He has purchased for us. We are made joint heirs with Him. Thus, we too then become princes and princesses of the God and Father of our Lord. We are royal heirs of God. And like our kingly example in Christ Jesus, it is for us to set our affections on things above. To know and to do the will of the Father. Not only is Jesus our kingly example in the line of David, the historical reality of our salvation. He has made us joint heirs with Him before the Father. We are sons and daughters of the living God. And it is for us to do like our example in Christ, the will of the Father. Let us pray together.